Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, continues today in Galatians 5:20-21, where the Apostle Paul identifies the hatred and hostility in relationships as the decaying smell of our sin nature. After exposing the destructiveness of immorality and idolatry, Paul turns to the bitter spirit that can destroy our interpersonal relationships. I remember when I was a kid, um, I figured out one day, and this must have been my beginning of being a chemistry major, I took a brown paper sack, the kind that you use for your lunches, and I realized in experimenting a little bit, you could fill it with water. And if you didn't get the water really hot, if you just got it kind of hot, you could fill that brown paper sack and then turn it real tight, and it would hold just long enough. So my little brother came home from school, and he was nonchalant, unsuspecting. I went up to him, filled this brown paper sack with hot water, turned it tight, and I smashed it right over his head. And man, that scared him to death. It wasn't hot like McDonald's coffee, but it was, you know, it scared him really good. That night, I was watching the Disney World, the the old Disney program, sitting in this nice chair, you know, looking at the old uh, Disney hour, probably Davy Crockett and something like that. And, And suddenly, my little brother got even. He came up behind me, and he took a hammer, and he just hit me right over the top of the head and cracked my head wide open. My mom had to rush me to the doctor. So I know where your family's at. I really do. So anger is something we really wrestle with. We've been talking about the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a young church like ours, a a lot of Gentile believers. The church of Galatia was wrestling with immorality. We shared about that they're living in this immoral culture. Even in their worship times, the cultic prostitution and all that was part of the way they worshiped. So they were in that culture, the hookup culture and the just live together, uh, just have sex. They were in that culture. And the Apostle Paul challenged them to think through, this is one of the works of the flesh. Then he also not only focused on that horizontal relationship between the sexes, but he focused on our vertical relationship. When we closed last week and we didn't touch on it too much, if you look at Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul spells out idolatry, And he spells out witchcraft or pharmakeia, the word that's used for drugs. And all of these sins of the flesh intermix together. They influence your life and they kind of flow one into the other. And we talked about how, how idolatry is a word that comes from the worship. It's a Greek word that means to worship, to serve, to get down on your knees before an image. And I talked about in our own culture, like if you spend more time um, watching the image of movies, for example, then you worship that. If you spend more time doing that than you do worshiping the Lord Jesus, studying his word, praying, then that's idolatry because you're believing when I go to the movies, that's when I feel alive. That's when I feel I capture my dream. You know, some of you, like as you grow older, you can start to spend an hours and hours watching television. And that becomes what eases your pain, what you think will help you to find rest. That's idolatry. You're worshiping an image. It can happen in reading books. You can escape in reading books, and you just love just to have all these images that an author brings to you. Nothing wrong with reading. Nothing wrong with watching TV. Nothing necessarily wrong with a movie. In themselves, they can be used for great good, but they can become what we hold our life together with. 
That can be anything. It can be a vehicle. And that's what idolatry is. It's the worship of a thing. For example, like in the ancient world, one of the things they worshipped was like the Caesar. And so they would do drums and everything that would honor the Caesar. And they would make images of the Caesar. And our early Christian brothers and sisters even died because they wouldn't bow before that image of the Caesar. They wouldn't worship politics. They wouldn't worship government. They just wouldn't believe that that was the ultimate thing in life. So you think it through for yourself. What are you bowing down before? And what you're bowing down before is what in the core of your being is holding your life together. We also looked at the idea that that often is related to the drug culture. And pharmakeia was the word that Paul uses next in the idea of the works of the flesh. It's a word from which we get our word pharmacy. A very legitimate meaning of that word was like medicinal drugs. And so it would be used totally in a positive sense. But in the ancient world, it was also used for sorcery and witchcraft. And one of the ideas I wanted you to get a hold of is that from the beginning of time, the drug culture has been part of the kingdom of wickedness, the kingdom of evil. And so if you're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not fellowshipping with believers, you're not in the youth group, for example, you're not in the college group, you're not having any fellowship with believers, and you're going out clubbing, and you start drinking a lot because alcohol is one of those poisons that you just get totally drunk, you're doing that as an act of worship. It's part of your holding your life together. You have your in-group. When you start to say, I don't want to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to be with other friends. They understand me better. They know me better. That's your worship. And I want you to know that Satan will produce a whole alternative system to what you have in your youth group, what you have in middle school, what you have in your community groups as adults, and you're deciding who you worship. Across Midlothian, the whole area, people are deciding, will I worship this? And I want you to know that, that drugs is a very important part of that culture. In fact, pharmacaea could even be used for poison. And so it was related even to poisoning women and taking their babies in abortion. And so that's part of that kingdom of the, of, of the darkness, of the occult. In the ancient world, women would go that didn't want to have a baby, and they would take some of this pharmacaea, some of the drugs, so they wouldn't have to have that baby. Part of what I want you to see is that Satan, just down to the ages, kind of comes over with the same story, same plan, repeating it. And you're going to decide what spirit you live for. Now today, you know, when I talk about immorality, sexual immorality is like really big. You know, that, that, it's something we, we wrestle with, but we really clear that. It's clearly see, that's a sin of the flesh. We talk about idolatry and taking drugs. Obviously, you know, that's part of the kingdom of darkness. But the Apostle Paul only used three words to describe sexual immorality. He only used two words about our sins of the, in the vertical dimension of our relationship with the Lord. He uses eight words to describe the next thing we want to talk about. And he talks about this, the things that tear down our interpersonal relationship. And we want to look at those words. He starts out with the most general word. It's the word hatred. Look at Galatians chapter 5. He says, now the acts of the sinful nature, the works of the sinful nature are obvious. And after he talks about witchcraft, he talks about hatred. Hatred was the big general word that covers all the words on the rest of the list. And I want you to ask yourself, deep inside your heart, is this an attitude that's controlling your spirit today? It's hostility and antagonism. I wrote in your notes that it's an inner attitude that expresses itself in war against your enemy. In interpersonal relationships, it's an habitual attitude of distaste and anger towards someone. Is there someone that you have a distaste for? 
that you find that every time you see them, you have this dark hostility that comes over you. That's what we're talking about. Like, most of us wouldn't be blatant enough to say, well, I really hate that person. When you're a little kid, how many of you remember saying, I hate you? How many of you remember saying that as a little kid? As you grow old, how many of you, you know, you know disciplined your kids for saying that on the playground? All of you did. As we grow older, we tend to camouflage that, but the attitude's there. For example, in the first century world, they were very hostile. If you were a Jew and somebody else was a Gentile, there was racial hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it expressed itself. The Jews had names that they called the Gentiles, and the Gentiles had names that they called the Jews. And just so you'll understand how how deep that hatred was, in 67 AD, it broke into total war. And the Jews rose up and fought against the hated Romans, the hated Gentiles. So this was a very real thing. Now, what happened in a group of believers and this is one of the, the ultimate extreme things, the animosity between a Jew and a Gentile. If you can think in your own life this morning, the racial group that you can't stand, that you tend to have just a deep-seated hostility for, and you have names that you call them, if you think about that kind of an attitude, and then you think about being in church with them, that's the kind of reconciliation that Jesus brought in the first century. In fact, it talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Just listen to this. Listen to what Paul said. For he himself, the Lord Jesus is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the, the dividing line, the wall that was between them. He abolished in his flesh. It is the Lord Jesus abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose in doing this was to create in himself one new man, and thus making peace. In this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access to the Father by one spirit. This is what Paul is saying. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. The Jews wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles because they were dirty dogs because they didn't obey their rules and regulations. They ate the wrong food. They wore the wrong clothes. They went to all the wrong places. They were debauched morally. So the Jews hated them. The Gentiles, on the other hand, looked upon the Jews as being very arrogant, being very prudish, being very weak because they weren't the ruling power and this tremendous animosity, this hostility. Jesus had the audacity when he died on the cross and rose again to put them in the same body of Christ, the same church. What Paul is saying, and this is what gripped the first century world, in the first century world, Jews and Gentiles were able to meet together like you're meeting together Sunday morning, and they became one, and there was peace between them. And that meant that Jesus, by his power, overcame that hostility, overcame that tremendous animosity, that hatred. What does that mean for us? I think that the Holy Spirit can help you not to hate your husband, not to hate your wife. Say, I don't hate my, my, my wife. Yeah, you do. When you have a constant spirit of distaste, some of you husbands, as soon as you see your wife, you have a distaste for her. You have animosity towards her. Some of you, you know, wives are that way towards your husband. As soon as you see him, there used to be love. There used to be togetherness. But now you just feel this, I, I just hate him. 
And you don't vocalize it, but it's a very real part of your relationship. And that's a spirit that's come over you. It's an attitude that's come over you. You saw like what happened with a kid. Uh, a parent can be abusive. And there can be a righteous indignation when a parent's constantly being perfectionistic and challenging the kid. But if you hold on as a kid, if you hold on to that anger and you try to handle it yourself, it becomes a deep-seated bitterness and animosity towards your mom and dad. It'll influence all your relationships. Some of you have experienced really bad stuff in life. And it was unjust. It was wrong. And you feel really wounded. You feel hurt. And when you feel hurt and you feel threatened, you're afraid. One of the emotions we have that explodes in anger, it explodes in hatred. And what Paul is saying is that, that the initial impulse, the initial impulse isn't wrong. It's something that all of us have, especially when we're illegitimately attacked, we're illegitimately hurt. The tragedy is when we hold on to it. You can't hold on to it because then it becomes an attitude that begins to permeate your life. It becomes the spirit of your life. And I want to ask you, is the spirit of your life deep inside a spirit of peace, a spirit of reconciliation, or a spirit of hostility? I believe that if the first century church could unite Jews and Gentiles, then I think he can unite our families. I think he can unite us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want us to really be thinking seriously about where is the spirit in this? What spirit's controlling us? What spirit is touching our lives? Now, when you have the spirit of hatred, you have the spirit of animosity, it starts to lead to the second word. Notice it talks about a spirit of hatred. Look at the next word. It says there's hatred, there is discord. This is constant quarreling. Discord is like when, when Corby and the group are playing together. When they're practicing, sometimes when I come here early Sunday morning, I'm not picking on Corby, but sometimes he'll say, stop, because there's discord. And what it means is that rather than the notes being harmonious, they are discordant, and it grates on you. Somebody's off-key, and it sounds terrible. And that's what the basic meaning of this word. Instead of being harmony, there's disharmony. The basic root meaning of this word is that you have this basic disjunction in the way that you relate to somebody, and it causes you, this deep-seated animosity causes you to constantly be quarreling. Are you a person that's always fighting? I wrote this. It's constantly taking the other side in an argument simply to defeat the other person with no regard for what it's true. In your marriage relationship, if your wife says that, the, that, that it is black, do you automatically turn around and say, no, it's red? That's the spirit. You're discordant. Do you have a friend that you're with and you're eating together and as soon as they mention a subject, you respond back the other way and you're automatically their enemy and you start quarreling back and forth. Every single thing becomes that. That comes from the fact that there's a spirit that's inside of you that's making you be discordant. You constantly argue. You constantly fight. And what you're doing is you're in this very defensive, aggressive posture back and forth, and you, you, you attack each other. The Apostle Paul in Titus 3.9 used this word again. He says, but avoid foolish strife. Avoid foolish controversies. Don't fight and argue and quarrel over meaningless words. And he says this, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinfully self-condemned. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you're dealing with someone within church relationships 
and you try to reach them and try to get them to have a spirit of reconciliation, a spirit of peace, and they're hostile, they just reject and they just come on with argument. They just quarrel constantly. The Apostle Paul says, deal with them once. But if they still have that contentious spirit, then don't have anything to do with them. What's really important, if you have a spirit of strife in your heart, then what happens is you are pushing everybody away from you. And what you're going to do in your relationship, you'll do this in your marriage, you will go to a divorce court and you will be right on. You will have your just cause written out. You will have all the reasons why your wife has totally been a jerk and why they have totally hurt you and why you have every right to do what you're doing. It's going to be about your rights. If you leave church, you'll say, that church hurt me. That church did this and this and this and this and this. And I've got to go somewhere else. If strife is diamond in your heart, you're going to go from one broken relationship to the next. That's the way that it works. And no one's ever going to understand you. No one's ever going to get close to you. That's why this work of the flesh is so powerful. It's so evil. So if you find yourself during this past week constantly quarreling, constantly quarreling with your kids, constantly quarreling with your spouse, constantly quarreling with friends, constantly quarreling in church, always having a negative side, if you automatically jump to the contradiction, then the spirit of discord is controlling your life. And it's part of the sin nature. And I have it and you have it. That leads to the next word. The Apostle Paul leads, goes from discord, and he talks about jealousy. Now, jealousy can be used in a very good word. Notice he talks about hatred. He talks about um, discord, and he moves to, to jealousy. This is a word that can be used in a very positive way for someone that has passion. And there's some of you here, like if you hear something, um, you really get exercised about it. For example, when you heard about Katrina, there's some of you that have tremendous passion. Man, you rise up and you want to help and, and you respond really quick and you, know, you really get things moving. And I want to bless that side of you. Some of you move from your emotions and it's real important to be in a family of believers where you can unite with those that have a little bit more you know, reasoned approach. The Lord uses all that together. So I want you to understand that the basic meaning of this word that Paul uses is the word zeal. It's the word to be zealous. It means to really get involved and to, and to go for it. And some of you have that attribute. So it can be used in the Old Testament, the word that's used here, for example, of, of Phineas, this Old Testament saint, that when the people of God were really rebelling against God and had done something really evil, Phineas rose up and killed a couple that was immoral. I mean, it, he, this is back in the old law days. And Phineas got so angry because the people of God were falling into terrible sin in tremendous zealousness. He rises up and slays the ones that are sinning. And it was, a, it was true to the Lord's will. So that was a good kind of zealousness. It talks in the Old Testament about being zealous for the Lord. But that same passion, the same passion can become very negative. Anger is a passion that rises up within us. It's right underneath the surface. And it causes us to be jealous. For example, the Lord raised Joseph up among his brothers. And Joseph was more beloved by his father, which was an unjust situation. Judah, his brother, will pick him out because he was the leader. He said, this isn't fair. And I hate the fact that my little brother is getting the honored place. He got the coat and he became jealous. And all of you have experienced that. And what did Judah do? He sold his brother into slavery, threw him in a pit, was going to kill him, 
And then he said, oh, no, let's make some money. And he sold his brother into slavery. Now, the Lord oversaw all of that and worked it all together for good. But at that stage, when Judah, Joseph's brother, was about 20 years of age, he was filled with this zealous, I'm going to get my way. The idea here is, and a lot of our anger, and you need to relate to this, it's the passion that arises in you when somebody else gets the position that you're supposed to have. Somebody else gets the success that you're supposed to have. Someone else gets the recognition that you're supposed to have. And rather than being able to rest, and my heavenly daddy's going to take care of things. My heavenly daddy will be kind to me. He will be gracious. So I can be filled with peace. I can take the place that God and my heavenly daddy has for me. Instead, you're going to fight for what you want. Fight for your position. And so you become filled with an angry zeal that begins to be really destructive. That angry zeal can explode. The angry zeal can explode into fits of rage. The next word that's used there is a word that means hot temper and angry outbursts. The explosive boil-up of abusive speech that can lead to physical attack that flows from a heart that's hot with self and with hate. It says in Colossians 3.8, Because of the wrath of God is coming, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of such things as this anger and rage and malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. I want to read that again. Because this is, this is where we live. If you are not walking in the power of the Spirit, then you're walking in the power of your old sin nature. So you will sit here hour after hour, year after year, and you'll sit here piously, and you will look really good. But when you go home, you start having hostility, you start striving, and as soon as the right triggers are pulled, the cuss words come out. The name-calling starts happening, and you explode in a fit of rage. And what I want you to see is the Apostle Paul, as he talked to the first century church, he said, I know that that's happening. I know that that's where families are. And he's saying, you can put that off. That used to be who you were outside of Jesus. You used to just live just for that, that getting even. You used to have to have a list, making everything fair. But now, through the power of Jesus, you have resurrected power. You can put that off. And he tells you to put off anger and wrath that explode. And what he says in contrast, he says, be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's Ephesians 4.31. You're either living a life of justice today or you're living a life of forgiveness. And if you're living a life of justice, then you're angry and it will boil, and you'll express it in a lot of different ways, and this person expresses it openly in a fit of rage. So if, you're, if you have a fit of rage today, the reason that you go into fits of rage, the reason you explode, the reason you have a short temper, is that you are living for your own personal justice. In fact, you have a list. You have a list of everything your marriage partner has ever done in life. And you could show me that list, and you're right on. They really have hurt you. And so you have a right to punish them, to hurt them back. So you explode. And you're totally justified. That in your own mind, you're totally justified. You have been treated unfairly as a husband. This is not what I was planning on. This was not the marriage I wanted to be in. 
As a kid, this isn't the family I wanted to be in. This is not the way I want things to be. As a senior in high school, I wasn't expecting to be here. Everybody's messing with me. Everybody's getting me. And so I'm going to explode. I'm going to hit them back. You're living for your own personal justice. And I want to share with you, if you live like that, you're going to eventually tear all your relationships apart. Because I want to share with you, right now, the world is very unjust. Every relationship you're in is not going to line up with justice. Very seldom. And your Savior has told you to live on a totally different basis. He wants you to start to live on a principle of forgiveness. So I want to ask you, in all of your relationships, daddies and mommies with your kids, kids with their daddies and moms, husbands and wives in your spouse relationships, with your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your relationships throughout the business world, are you living by forgiveness, by gracious forgiveness? You say, how do I do that? Let Jesus pay for everything that's done against you. Right now, you can let Jesus pay. You don't have to make people pay yourself. The reason you're so angry is you're going to make everybody pay. Some of you, that's the the hallmark of your life. Man, nobody gets by me. I've got it, and I'm going to make them pay. And you're filled with hate. And you'll eventually have a terribly bad temper that just explodes in terrible anger. I want to share with you, there's the other side. Like, some of you explode, and I want to share with you one good thing about that is that we can see it. For example, the wife that explodes and just curses at her husband and then hits him, and he grabs a hold of her. We, at least we know, hey, she's angry. There's some of you husbands that don't do that at all. In fact, you totally control that conversation. You don't curse. You don't yell. You don't punch. But you internally turn away. You change the subject. Whenever there's disagreement, you are gone. You turn, even bodily, or you go and do something else. You know what else you do? Your wife asks you to do something, and some of you that really have it down well, you say, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do it. But it never happens. And you're the one that has anger really, really bad. Because you smile at me. You're nice to me. You're the perfect churchgoer. You're the perfect husband. But you are sabotaging all the relationships of people that you love because you're ticked. And one of the ways you can know it is when your wife leaves, you curse her. You say those four-letter words underneath your breath and say, she's a you-know-what. You jump in your car and say, I got to go do something else. I got to go hunting or I got to do something else. You're what we call passive aggressive. You don't express your anger in violent outbursts of anger, but it's seething within you. And so what you do is you are like, like Gandhi did in India. The British were in India. And they didn't rise up and hit them. They couldn't. The British were too powerful. So Gandhi got millions upon millions of people to be passively resistant. That's how he got the British out. It's the most powerful form of being an enemy. What you do is you just hold yourself in and you resist everything that your partner wants. And that's the same thing as hatred. It's the same thing. as, as it's, the, it's not fits of rage. It's just this slow-burning, zealous Anger that burns inside of you. And the Apostle Paul is saying that's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the flesh. He goes on and talks about fits of rage. He talks about selfish ambition. That's the next word that's there. This word was originally used for someone that ran for political office. 
and that, or someone that would buy and sell political office. It's a word that means you're in it for yourself. And this is real important because what Paul is saying is that if we live for what our ambitions are, if we live for what we believe is the truth, then we're going to be angry and we're going to be hostile towards others. What it would mean like this, like in my marriage, for example, if I am selfishly ambitious, I have an idea that this is what marriage ought to be. This is where I ought to be. This is the way my kids should treat me. This is the way people should respond to me. This is the way Midlothian Bible Church should respond to me. If I'm selfishly ambitious, then I have my ambitions. I have my plan. And if it's not lining up, then I get really upset about it. I get really angry about it. And that's what selfish ambition is. It's very, very powerful, and it will destroy you. Because then you start saying, well, I'm going to do something else, and I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to move on to something else. And that's why a whole lot of you in your marriage, what happens, you're going along in your marriage, and suddenly you start to wake up and say, man, this is not my dream of what a family should be, of what a marriage should be. And so it's not meeting your plan. So then you're quarreling, you're striving. Tremendous hostility boils up. And eventually you're going to be out of there. Because the way your anger works is you hit, you quarrel, you fight, you say bad words. The next stage is you run. And so as soon as you fight and flee, fight and flee, you're dealing with this work of the flesh. Whenever you have the spirit in relationships, I got to fight them, which means I'm going to strive with them, I'm going to quarrel, I'm going to, they're really, that's not the way it ought to be, and I'm really hot about it. That's the first fighting. The next thing is I got to leave. So a whole bunch of you, you know, you're going to Midlothian Bible Church for years and then you're gone. What does that happen? Well, sometimes it happens because you really need to go somewhere else because there's another phase of your life and somebody else teaches in a little different manner that the Holy Spirit can really use. But if you do that unmad, you'll come and say, David, I've, it's been great to be in Midlothian Bible Church and I really feel I should minister over here. You'll do that fine. But that's not what most people do. Most people go to church for a little while. They get close to people. And then they get hurt, and then it's not fair, and they get angry, and their words for it is, well, the Lord led me to go somewhere else. No, he didn't. You're just plain angry, and you want to run. And one of the things that will happen is that if you're really in a body of believers that's really teaching the truth and really helping to get close to the Lord, then you'll have to face what's going on inside of you. You're going to have to unmask what's going on in your soul. And you're going to have to let the Holy Spirit produce peace in your life. And that's hard. It's hard on me. It's hard on you. But the Lord Jesus produces a sweet honesty so that you don't have to just be angry because your ambitions aren't being met because you're focused on what's God's ambition. And the really cool thing about God's ambition, you know what? Jesus is not being blocked in accomplishing what he wants to do with my life. I am in exactly the right marriage and Mary's uniquely crafted to, to, to carve on me and mold on me and to her friction of her personality shapes me exactly right. And Jesus isn't being blocked at all because I'm in the marriage I am. And Mary, sometimes she wonders, but Mary has exactly the right husband <laughs> that can shape and mold her. We don't have to go anywhere else. Because Jesus isn't being blocked. A whole lot of you, I want you to think hard. There's a lot of you this morning that feel blocked. Your life's not adding up. You don't like it. You got a whole list of grievances. 
and you feel blocked because that's the way anger works. Like if you're in a, McDonald's, if you're in a Walmart line and I push in on you and knock you out of the line and say, I'm going to stand here, how are you going to react? Get out of here. Works and I'm going to be there. As soon as you're blocked, you get angry. And that's almost a ton of anger relates to I feel blocked. So you're a wife. You're blocked in your marriage. This isn't what I planned on. This is not the jerk that I wanted to be married to. This is not the kind of a situation I wanted to be in. And I got my whole list, and so you'll tell me, I got to go because I'm blocked. And you'll even tell me piously, oh, it's the will of the Lord, and it's what God wants me to do, and God doesn't want this hostility. No, he doesn't want this hostility. He wants you to have the peace of the Spirit. He wants to teach you to love your enemies. And if Jesus could hang on a cross and say to people that were cursing him and violently abusing him and producing tremendous pain in his life, if Jesus could say, Father, forgive them for they know what they're due, then I think some of you wives could say to your husband, I forgive you because you don't know what you're doing. And all of you are into, it's a dominant thing among Americans today, we're not into dying on the cross. We're into getting our needs met. And that's why none of our relationships work very long and work very well. And Jesus is calling us to a totally different lifestyle. I don't live for what's fair. I don't live for my own selfish ambitions. I start to live. Lord, show me the way of the cross. Show me the way to love my enemy. And sometimes my worst enemy is the one that's the closest to me. I'm really serious about it. The Lord wants me to love Mary when she hurts me. He wants me to love Mary when she doesn't understand me. She wants me. He wants me to love Mary when she's not coming through for me because my love is not an economic relationship. It's built, it flows from the cross. And you say, Dave, that's impossible. Brothers and sisters, you got a long family history. This is what changed the world. Believers, instead of hating their enemies, prayed for their enemies. Believers like you went into the Colosseum as the lions, hungry lions, were let loose on them. And masters and slaves, maids with their matrons, bowed their heads and prayed. And crowds heard them pray, Lord, open their eyes. Help them to meet our precious Savior. Help them to come under the power of Calvary. And a Gentile world, an unbelieving world, started to see people that had this incredible, powerful gift of love, and it changed the world. You're deciding today what you believe in, whether you believe in your own personal justice or whether you believe that Jesus ultimately wins when he hanged on the cross for others. And if you're going to join him in that pathway, you'll stop being an angry person. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. That's his command to you. And so that begins in your home. When your loved ones become your enemy, you're to still love them. And you're going to do it through the power of Jesus. I don't have it in my own strength. I can only have it through Jesus. So you've got to give up your selfish ambition. And when you don't, you have divisions and factions. Those are two words that leads to parties. For example, there's a lot of divorces taking place in our church right now. That's true. So you all need to pray about it. And there can be divorce because like if, 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 as, if, as a husband, if you're beating up on your wife and you're immoral towards her, using an extreme case, and her life is threatened, the scripture says it's that, you, that she has the right to divorce you. 
because immorality, the Lord in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, that's one of the things, and abandonment in 1 Corinthians, and Paul and Jesus weren't just giving. This is the legal thing. What they're saying is that there can come situations in life where someone's hardened in their sin. They are irrepentant. They're not repentant. And so as a wife, for example, that your husband's being immoral and he's sleeping with a lot of other women, so you're taking your own life at risk. You could get venereal diseases. You could get sick, and then you wouldn't be able to be a mother. The Apostle Paul and Jesus recognized that. That's not usually what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about in our church family usually. What we're usually talking about is, I'm ticked. This marriage isn't fair. And my life isn't going the way I want it to go. And so I'm going to go to a courtroom. And I'm going to get an unbelieving lawyer that will get the very best deal I can get, and then I'm going to live. And brothers and sisters, throughout Ellis County, it's a joke what I teach here Sunday morning. It's a joke. We're supposed to have Jesus. We're supposed to have the power of the cross. We're supposed to have the power of the resurrection. And yet our group as we grow, dissolves our marriages probably more than the unbelieving world. And brethren and sisters, my unbelieving friends say, it's a joke. Jesus doesn't do anything. He can't help you get along. I get along better than you do. But you know what? They're wrong. Because Jesus can do it. Jesus can change you. And Jesus can help you. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, my prime concern in my life is I don't want Jesus' name to be dishonored. One of the strongest reasons I'm going to be faithful to Mary by the power of the Spirit and by Jesus' grace till the day I die is because it would totally destroy me if it ever had to be announced that I had shamed the name of my Lord because I wasn't faithful to Mary and I left her. That's what I'm concerned about. Are you? I'm working with people now. I'm not really concerned about Jesus. I'm concerned about me. If you need to get a divorce in Midlothian Bible Church, brothers and sisters, sometimes that can happen. Why don't you do what the First Corinthians says? If there's a legal dispute, deal with it in the church. Brothers and sisters are right here in your family of believers, and they will work with you, and they will love you, and they will try to make sure that we really judge one another. But we need to stop breaking God's principles and going to secular law courts because it's dishonoring the name of Jesus. And I want you to pray about that. As we close that, I want to ask you, what spirit's in your own heart? I really wrestle with anger. We all do. I share with you, I hit my little brother over the head with a, with a wet paper sack. I remember, you know, fighting. We threw, we threw ivory birds at one another when we got angry. But you know what? 
I haven't exploded like that in a long time. I haven't killed any cats recently. <laughs> and you don't have to either. So we close today. You know what some of you need to do this afternoon? You need to, some of you wives need to get alone and write all the things that you hate your husband for. You need to get a sheet of paper out and you need to write all the things that you think your wife is a jerk, you think she's let you down, all the stuff that you keep bringing up in your arguments every time that you have an argument. You need to take that sheet. Husbands, you need to do the same thing. And then you need to take the sheet to one another and fight it out. No. <laughs> Don't do that. You know what you need to do? I'd like a whole bunch of you to take your sheet, and kids, you can do it with the hatred you have against friends, hatred you have against mom and dad. You need to take your sheet, and you need to go down that list, and you say, Lord Jesus, can I forgive them for this? Can I forgive them for this? Can I forgive them for this? If your husband was unfaithful to you, and he's come back to Jesus, and he wants to be a new person under the power of God, you're going to have to ask yourself, can Jesus' blood forgive? And if Jesus' blood can forgive, then you'll never throw up to him again that he was immoral, ever. Because that would be to demean the power of the blood of Jesus. And you'll trust. You say, how can I ever trust him again? The only trust you got is the resurrected power of Jesus making your husband brand new. And you'll decide, and I want to share with you, you won't be the laughing stock. You won't be mocked. And you could turn that around the other way. If you're a husband and your wife has, has hurt you and she's been nagging you and she constantly attacks you and she's constantly trying to control you. Men, the reason a lot of your wives are doing that is because you're distancing yourself from them. They feel scared because you don't act the man. You don't show your love to them. So you're angry, but you don't express it with hostility openly. You just withdraw from them. You just let them hang out there, totally you know, out there on their own, controlling everything. And then you laugh at them because they can't hold their life together. That's anger. The Lord Jesus says to me as a man, he says, Dave, you can be forgiving. Instead of being worried about justice, you can start being really concerned about love. As we close, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest things in all of life is to get pushed out of line in Walmart and look at that person and say, you know what? You must be having a rough day. I really care about you. Is there anything I could pray for you about? Boy, that would change things around. And brothers and sisters, that's how Jesus told us to react. In the first century, Roman soldiers kicked Jews, spit at them, and said, you need to carry my stuff for a mile. And the Lord taught Jewish believers, instead of getting up and grabbing a dagger, he taught them to stand up and look at that Roman centurion with a great big smile and say, Sir, I'll carry your stuff two miles because I got a great Savior. As we close today, brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, Well, you, Dave, you don't know the hellhole I'm in. You don't know the wicked person that I live with. Corey Tenboom and her sister lived in a worse hellhole than any of you in this room. Corey Tenboom and her sister lived in Auschwitz. And the SS troops hated their guts. They ended up killing 
Corey's sister. But I want to ask you, the Nazis lived for brutal violence and anger and hatred. Corey lived for Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who do you want to be like? Who won in the end? Who lived their life the way it should be lived? Corey Tenboom left her sister behind, but her sister went to heaven. Corey went out, and her story was told all over the world. And millions of people have come to Jesus because of her, because she learned how to have the fruit of the Spirit reconciling peace instead of angry, vindictive, personal fairness. Will you let it go? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help me. It's easy to speak to my brothers and sisters about living for self-sacrifice and forgiveness. And Lord, I can have that cool, distancing spirit. And Lord, I don't lash out, but I do turn away. And I change the subject, and I really have a hard time just facing legitimate contention. I just ask you, Lord, that you would help me not to be passive-aggressive. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to unbear my soul like we learned to do from Psalm 4 and meditate in my heart at night and, and let you deal with a question of fairness. Let you be the one that sets things right. Lord Jesus, I really do pray that there would be some of my brothers and sisters that would take their list, that they would write down all the things that they feel really hurt from, that they feel abused, with all the rights that they have. And I pray that they'll talk to you about it. And help them to let you be the one that fights for them so that they can be a peaceful, secure, easy person inside. Dear Lord Jesus, some of, my, some of my friends right here sitting before me are angry and they hardly know it. They've been hurt so badly and they're so afraid the only mechanism they know is to bite and to lash out. And oh Lord Jesus, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would help them to, to be able to discern that spirit of passionate, anger and hatred and animosity that's pushing people away. And I'd ask you, Lord, that, that your sweet spirit would powerfully pour peace into their life. I pray, Lord, that the power that lifted Corey Ten Boom and her sister from a life of vindictiveness and hatred and enable them to love their enemies, Lord, I pray that we will love our enemies within Midlothian Bible Church. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.